from deep inside your audio device of choice. This is Le Show. Early last summer, just shortly after Donald Trump announced his candidacy for the presidency, um, a piece appeared in a website called National Memo, written by David K. Johnston, who had uh, been a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times, among many other professional accomplishments. And the piece was called 21 Questions for Donald Trump. Um, I remember reading it at the time and thinking, huh, I wonder if anybody's going to ask these questions. In the intervening months, there was uh, silence on almost all of these topics. And then in the furious uh, early March a fusillade of attacks on Trump. Some of them did uh, rise to uh, public attention, but many others haven't. So my guest today to review the, his 21 questions for Donald Trump is the distinguished uh, journalist, and uh, especially on matters relating to economics and taxes, uh, currently teaching at Syracuse University and columnist for USA Today, David K. Johnston. David, welcome to the show. Well, Harry, thank you for having me back. A pleasure. Um, So 21 questions. You had covered Donald Trump, apparently, uh, over the years. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Well, when I left the Los Angeles Times in 1988, I went to Atlantic City to write about the casino industry. And was it possible to take uh, this industry and regulate it and make it honest and not be like it was in uh, uh, most of its history? And, of course, Donald Trump was the biggest player in town, and a great deal of my attention was uh, directed at him and his business dealings. And I wrote a book, uh, my first book, called Temples of Chance, because to a lot of people, gambling is a religious experience, (laughs) uh, about how America, Inc. took over the casino business from Murder, Inc. And then I continued to cover him off and on. at the New York Times, uh, uh, he got so incensed and complained so loudly to the editors that when I learned things about him, I just fed them to other reporters um, so that uh, they got into the paper. And I didn't particularly care that it wasn't my name on them. I want to linger at that period for a moment because it seems to me that the reason, one of the reasons, aside from uh, certain things that he says during his campaign rhetoric, that we are at this moment in time is because of the uh, what to an outsider seemed the inordinate amount of attention paid to Donald Trump by national media in the early and mid-1990s, when he was basically a New York real estate guy and a local loudmouth. Was there a moment when it seemed to you as if uh, his exploitation, or I should say mutual exploitation of the tabloid New York press, uh, crossed the line in the serious New York press uh, you know, now he then he appears on the cover of Time magazine all of a sudden. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, w- w- was that a, a signal moment to you that something has happened? Yeah. Uh, Donald, you know, uh, uh, I covered very closely his financial troubles in 1990 when he, he claimed to be worth three billion dollars, but he couldn't pay his bills as they came due and got a hold of his personal net worth statement that showed he actually uh, was uh, in the hole hundreds of millions of dollars, or as we put it in the Philadelphia Inquirer, where I was working at the time on the front page, you are probably worth more than Donald <laughs> Trump. <laughs> but the, the event that really made it take off was um, I knew that he had this uh, mistress named Marla Maples that he kept at the Trump Plaza, and the editors of the Inquirer and I had agreed that that was not a story. This was the Philadelphia Inquirer, just to be clear. The Philadelphia Inquirer. And the editors there and I agreed that a billionaire has mistress is just not news. The, the more likely story would be billionaire does not have mistress. <laughs> 
But I, we, when we discussed it, I said, look, one of these days it's going to come out and the tabloids in New York will go crazy and it'll be cheap TV news. And uh, Donald then uh, tried to sell pictures of the confrontation that he evidently arranged between Marla Maples and his wife on the ski slopes in Colorado. And soon after Marla's name came out, and this was the incident that I think uh, I thought this is, couldn't believe this would happen. You can't make it up was when he planted the story in the New York Post, uh, best sex ever, uh, Marla describing Donald. Ah. Uh, Donald is a is a, uh, a man who is a world-class narcissist. He has this desperate, pathetic, sad need to be thought important and special, and it, it literally has no bounds that I've ever seen, Harry, of any kind. Um, I've been romanced by Donald. I've been gone after by Donald. I mean, I've seen the, the full thing. We've sat and had lunch together and talked about things. Uh, he, he is a, a, a person who um, is just constantly, desperately in need of the approval of other people. He is focused on how do I get the news media to talk about me. That validates him to himself. And this campaign is really about Donald and his belief that he is the greatest person around, and that's why he denigrates everyone else, uh, which, of course, the greatest person who ever lived, uh, say, someone on the scale of Gandhi, would never do something like that. I haven't heard Gandhi and uh, Donald Trump in the same sentence in a while. Uh, <laughs> I've been waiting a long time to get this. I guess. So let's talk about these 21 questions. Uh, th- these were based on your reporting over the years, and uh, you, uh, your premise was that these were uh, cogent and uh, important questions uh, to be addressed to a potential presidential candidate. First one was uh, his philanthropy. <laughs> Donald calls himself an ardent philanthropist. Well, Back when uh, his bankers put him on a budget, and it included hundreds of thousands of dollars a month for charity, um, I, the reporter who worked under me, and another person got on the phone. We called charities all over the place. We couldn't find anybody that he was giving money to. He has the Donald J. Trump Foundation. Most of the money in it has come not from him, uh, but from the World Wrestling Federation, which he had a business relationship with, with the people who make his neckties in China and various other vendors who basically legally kick back money to him for their contracts. The tax returns of the foundation show that he hasn't made a gift to it since 2006. And that question would lead to, well, A, why haven't you done this when you keep saying you're such a generous person? B, if you look at the gifts they've made, they're minor inconsequential gifts, $10,000 to this charity, $5,000 to that one. If you're worth $10 billion, those are uh, insignificant gifts. And uh, finally, to um, what I think is an important fact, and that is uh, Donald in all likelihood pays no income taxes. And if you don't pay any income taxes, of course, there's no charitable deduction or no value, value in the charitable deduction for uh, making a gift to charity. That's why other people make the gifts to his foundation. They get a tax deduction. What leads you to say that he pays no income taxes? Well, I have Donald Trump's tax data, not the full returns, but his tax data, from the 1970s when he was a bachelor in Manhattan living quite a lifestyle. 
And it shows that uh, up until 1978, he had a sort of normal, prosperous income and paid taxes at uh, predictable rates. In 1978, he reported negative income of over $400,000 and paid no taxes. In 1979, it went to over $3.4 million, something Donald and I once talked about at lunch. $3.4 million negative. Negative, negative. And then in the 1990s, Congress very quietly reinstituted a rule that had been removed in the 1986 Tax Reform Act that Ronald Reagan signed that allowed anyone who works two days a week, that's full-time to Congress, (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, managing their own real estate to take unlimited deductions for the depreciation of their buildings, that is the, the wearing out of the buildings, against their other income. And if Donald actually has equity stakes, ownership stakes, in all of the buildings that he claims that are as big as they are, his depreciation should offset uh, tens of millions of dollars in annual income, and therefore he probably doesn't pay any taxes, assuming, of course, that he has those tens of millions of dollars of income. It could be he has negative income. It's enormous and a much smaller actual income than he would lead you to believe. This takes us to the question that came up a few weeks ago of him being audited on an annual basis, according to him. Do you have any information? I'm, I'm sure you have uh, speculation, but do you have any information as to why he's been audited apparently every year for the last 12 years? Well, first of all, I don't have any reason to think that that's true. Um, Donald <laughs> well, he said it was. It uh, well, I know. Donald says lots of things. Donald has numerous business entities, and if his view is that the audit of any one of them, even a routine audit saying this line is filled out wrong, he might be audited every year, but um, I'm sure his personal return has not been audited every year. And if it has been, if that's the message he wants to give us, and nobody's been able to ask him that direct question, that suggests it's really important he releases tax returns because you don't get audited year after year after year unless the IRS is pursuing something very serious about you. Um, and by the way, being under audit is absolutely no reason to withhold your tax returns. You've already signed them under oath. You've given them to the government. Mark Everson, the IRS commissioner for George W. Bush and I, were on Lawrence O'Donnell's show and, and both made the point there's no reason not to release those returns. And Trump says his audits are only from 2012 forward. Well, then fine. Give us the audits from, say, 1992 to 2012. You mean the returns? The returns. The returns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would the IRS uh, be able or willing to confirm or deny that he's under audit and and, uh, has been under audit for the years that he claims? Yeah, Congress passed a law that specifically bars them from disclosing any taxpayer information. Back in the 1920s, tax returns were public, and you can go back and read news accounts about what various rich people made. But uh, current law, the IRS uh, can't even acknowledge the existence of Mr. Trump. You uh, you weighed in back then, uh, second question regarding Trump University and uh, the promise that uh, he would give personal advice. What else did you think should be uh, brought to bear on the subject of Trump University? Well, Donald said that Trump University is going to be better than the Harvard Business School. <laughs> and people paid up to $35,000 to go there. One of the First of all, he never showed up. Once, not once. People got their picture taken with a cardboard cut out of him. Mm-hmm. And um, he, there was a, a, a advice they were given on financial advice. It was photocopied out of a magazine you could buy at the newsstand for five bucks. It wasn't this Trump was magazine, f- was it? 
No, it wasn't. I mean, this entire operation was a fraud, top to bottom. Uh, the uh, Donald keeps saying these people all said they were wonderful. Well, uh, in fact, they made initial statements to that effect. People were pressured to uh, give uh, wonderful, glowing reviews to him. And Donald was paid $10 million of the $40 million that was taken in from people for this. Um, and the university had no license. It had no real curriculum. He said the he was going to personally pick the professors. He's testified under oath. He did nothing to do with that. And this is typical of the kind of fraudulent business uh, business dealings that Donald is in. Um, he he has a, he's a great salesman. Obviously, he's a great salesman. But in this case, he was selling not uh, a steak or even a hamburger. He was selling nothing but the sizzle. The learning annex. I remember being in New York and seeing a picture of Donald Trump uh, being on offer as a a speaker for the learning annex and thinking, um, what billionaire do I know that teaches at the learning annex? (laughs) But you have another question. Yes. Well, Donald claimed he was paid a million dollars. In fact, he was paid, if I remember right, uh, he acknowledged later, $400,000. And he said the rest of it was promotional value for him. Well, you know, I, I could go around telling people, hey, I was on Harry Shearer's Le Show and, and walking into the studio in Rochester, somebody stopped and said, really, that's a big deal. And so I guess I'm going to start telling people that uh, I got a billion dollars of promotional value from Harry Shearer from appearing on his show. Uh, if only. Donald, <laughs> yeah, if only. I, I think this goes to his character. And I think that, uh, uh, look, uh, politicians are not angels. They're not Mother Teresa, not that she was herself so saintly. Mm-hmm. But but um, this is different. Donald is not somebody who um, uh, gets things wrong or, or says things on the edge of truth. This is somebody who routinely makes things up. And he's had to acknowledge under oath repeatedly that he makes up, you know, his wealth. His wealth. He, in in one case, uh, a lawsuit he brought against uh, my fellow former New York Times reporter Tim O'Brien, where he said that he did it just to harass him, not for any legitimate purpose, but to harass him for the seven or so years the lawsuit went on. Uh, Donald said, "Well, the value of his wealth depends on his mood." Boy, I'd love to tell that to my banker. I, I'm sure you would too when you're trying to raise money for some movie or other project, right, Harry? Yes, I would. Did you say? Did he say that under oath? Oh yeah! Wow. Yeah, and he he then he, then he corrected to say, well, he, they're reasonable inflation of the numbers, reasonable. Well, you know, if you're making up the numbers, I don't know what's reasonable. You know, there's there's uh, this is something you can reduce to truth or a range of numbers. But Donald just makes things up. And if if you're going around as he was in 1990, saying I'm worth three billion dollars, and you can't pay your bills, it sort of suggests you're really not worth three billion dollars. Question number four had to do with. Uh, saying when he announced his candidacy, he'd given away $102 million worth of land. Uh, what is that about? Well, uh, there, what Donald gave away most famously, if he gave it away, was the right to develop some land on the Palos Verdes Peninsula. Uh, the road that runs by there, Palos Verdes Drive, is often closed because it's uh, unstable. It's shifting land. And it is not developable. And when Donald bought it, he knew it was not developable with housing. And so he announced he was donating it. At the time, he said it was worth $26 million. Uh, The Wall Street Journal has now attributed to him $50 million. (laughs) And here's what's astonishing about it. Uh, The easement to prevent the development of the undevelopable land, 
he uses that land as the driving range for his golf course. That's self-dealing. That's not charity. So did he did he get a uh, did he get a tax deduction? Yes, he did. He get a tax. Deduction? We we yeah, and we don't know. There's some other land he gave away, and we don't know if he got a tax deduction or not. If he isn't paying income taxes, it would be an irrelevancy. Um, but uh, we don't know because none of these things are in in the public record. He gave a land for a park that has his name in New York State with taxpayer finance signs that have his name on them. And it's not uncommon for developers to make a gift of some land because they can't develop it or they want a buffer zone. If you're building luxury housing, you often want to put a park or a strip of some mm-hmm, kind to mm-hmm. differentiate you. And that's really self-interested giving. And there's there's a large fundamental problem with the way Congress treats this. Uh, the most famous case from about 30 years ago was in Colorado where somebody bought thousands of acres of land and then they gave away everything but the top of the mountain where their home and estate was located. So what they really got was a tax deduction to make sure that their view was never in any way damaged by development. A, a neighbor prevention plan. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to put it, a Thank neighbor you. prevention plan. Thank you. Um, question number nine gets into the area of the uh, illegal Polish immigrant workers who worked on Trump Tower. That has surfaced in the public debate. But questions six through eight uh, also bear on Trump Tower, but so far as I know, uh, the issues raised in those questions have not arisen in the public debate yet. You want to run us through those questions about Trump Tower? Sure. Donald grew up in Queens. His father mostly was a Brooklyn uh, builder of public housing and, and government-subsidized housing. And Donald looked at, the, looked at the bright lights of New York and wanted to be a big player there. So he bought the old Bonwit Teller building on Fifth Avenue, and instead of having it taken down in the normal way by union members from the House Wreckers Union with hard hats and equipment, the Polish brigade of illegal immigrants was brought in. They didn't have hard hats. They had sledgehammers. They slept on the uh, construction site because they had no money to live anywhere else. And um, they were cheated. They were paid 4 to $5 an hour. And that leads to understanding Donald Trump's long-standing and continuing relationships over many years with mobsters. Uh, Trump Tower is different from most of the high-rise buildings in New York built up to that time in that it is not a steel girder building. It was built with concrete. And at the time, concrete was significantly more expensive than steel girder. And the concrete came from a company called A&S Concrete, whose owners were mobsters, not just any two mobsters, but Fat Tony Salerno and Paul Castellano, the head of the two biggest, most vicious, murderous uh, mafia families in New York, the people Rudy Giuliani went after. What they got him was there were no inspections by city, state, or federal labor inspectors, or if there were, there's no reports written by the inspectors. And labor peace, even though this was mostly illegal labor, it was about 150 Polish guys and about 15 people from the House Wreckers Union. Normally, you'd have a strike with that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Especially in New there York. Was, oh, especially in New York. Um, Donald had promised uh, in order, return for the permits to put up a Trump Tower that he would protect the beautiful friezes at the Bonwit Teller Building and give them to uh, the Metropolitan Museum. Instead, because it was vastly cheaper, he had them destroyed. 
He uh, used a fake name, John Barron, as part of the whole scheme, and he employed a mob-connected labor consultant whom I knew named Danny Sullivan. He's now dead. And there's a documentary film in which Danny says on the film what he said to me. Of course Donald knew he was dealing with the mob. He was dealing with the mob because it was the lucrative, profitable thing to do. And that's the thing you need to understand. If he had built Steel Girder, Trump would have had minimal to no involvement with anybody involved with the mob. But by building a concrete building that cost more, uh, he had very intense relationships with them. And by the way, his lawyer was the notorious Roy Cohn. Mm-hmm who was also the lawyer for Fat Tony Salerno and Paul Castellano. Now, when you say Fat Tony Salerno, you're not calling him fat. That was his uh, mafia ni- nickname, right? He was fat. fat. Oh. He was fat. Right. But, <laughs> but that no, that was his nickname. He was known as Fat Tony. Uh, he died in prison, uh, ultimately, and, and uh, uh, people called him Fat Tony, including associates of his. Now, anybody could make a mistake and use a mob-connected uh, concrete company once. Uh, did he stop at Trump Tower? No, uh, Donald used them on uh, uh, several other buildings in New York, and I think he did so for the same reasons. It assured him he wouldn't have problems with building inspectors, uh, safety inspectors, or unions. Uh, uh, Donald basically, uh, I think the record is quite clear, and my friend Wayne Barrett, who was the first reporter to get on to uh, Donald before I came along, um, uh, puts it very well. Uh, Donald looked upon these criminals as a path to make money. Question 11 involves his uh, lawyer, Harvey Freeman, um, and, and, and it's an interesting question you ask. Yeah, let me just step back and point out one important thing. A federal judge after a trial with lots of witnesses, including Donald, found that Donald had engaged in a conspiracy to cheat the Polish workers and found that Trump's testimony had no credibility. So when Donald wanted to go to Atlantic City, the piece of land where he wanted to build the now defunct Trump Plaza Casino – Uh, He had to assemble parcels, and one of them was owned uh, by the local mob family down there, headed by Nicky Scarfo, who was particularly vicious and murderous. And so uh, Donald did not go negotiate. Donald says he's the world's greatest negotiator. Instead, he sent this old lawyer who worked for him, Harvey Freeman, to do the negotiating uh, directly with these guys because he didn't have Roy Cohn as his buddy intermediary to deal with as he did with the mobsters in New York. Uh, frankly, I mean, I think Donald did not go do the negotiating because uh, he was afraid of dealing with these guys directly. So he sent his lawyer. Question 12 also regards uh, Nicky Scarfo, uh, the value of a lot. Yeah, uh, Scarfo owned a piece of land that Donald bought um, and uh, it was a very complex machinations around it, but he paid twice the value of the lot. Now, if you're the world's greatest negotiator, why would you pay twice the value of a lot to these mob guys? What were you getting from them? Well, that goes to another point, which I didn't go into in that piece, but when there was a hotel strike in New York, the unions didn't strike Donald. When there was a hotel strike in Atlantic City, the unions didn't strike Donald. It um, isn't hard to figure out what's going on here. Uh Question 13 deals with his New Jersey casino license. Donald bragged in his book, The Art of the Deal, that he persuaded the attorney general of uh, New Jersey, John Degnan, uh, appointee of the governor, to limit his investigation of him to six months. Now, most people who got a license, even if you were a, a blackjack dealer, you had to put down every address you've ever lived at. You had to answer all sorts of questions. And... 
by limiting the investigation into his background, they didn't learn that when Ed Corman was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, Donald had been the uh, subject or target, depending on who you talk to, of a bribery investigation. He was never charged, but failure to disclose that should have disqualified Donald from having a casino license. The law in New Jersey was set by a case in which an applicant to be a, a very low-level license, a blackjack dealer, had not told the Casino Control Commission in her application that when she was a teenager, she gave some of her friends unauthorized discounts at the cash register. And that was held to be an act of such moral turpitude that she was unfit. Uh, Donald repeatedly uh, withheld things from the Casino Control Commission. And once he got his license, the commission, not just with him, but also with the owners of another casino that's now defunct the Sands, did everything they could to never ask a question that would force them to take away his license. They would come up with all sorts of excuses. In Donald's case, they would simply uh, they would uh, be told there's evidence, there's written evidence, there's tape recordings, there's people who will talk to you. And what they would do is ignore that, go talk to Donald, put him under oath, and he would say, I don't remember. And then they would say there's no evidence. Sounds like a racket to me. Question 16 involves someone named Joseph Weichelsbaum. Or we yeah, Joseph Wexel Wexel Wexelbaum. Wexelbaum. I think this is the single most important area that other journalists need to really plow into. Donald Trump had a personal helicopter pilot named Joe Wexelbaum. Joe Wexelbaum was a longtime criminal, and he was a major cocaine and marijuana trafficker. Now, it's important to understand there's no evidence of Donald ever using drugs. He doesn't drink, um, uh, and I'd be surprised if I find out he had ever used drugs. Uh, but when Joseph Wexelbaum was indicted in Ohio, his case, very curiously, out of the more than 800 federal judges, came before a judge in New Jersey named Marianne Trump Berry, Donald's older sister. Now, she did the right thing. She recused herself. She said, I can't hear the case. But think about what happened here. She goes down the hallway to the chief judge, Judge Dickinson, and says, in effect, Dickie Deer, I can't handle this case. He's the family helicopter pilot. He's flown me and my husband, John, and Donald, and someone else will have to take this. And, of course, in doing that, she delivered a message. This is a very sensitive matter for the federal judiciary. Joe Wexelbaum got an incredibly light sentence. Donald wrote a letter pleading for leniency for him. And this is the most important part, promising him a job the minute he got out. Well, he got an incredibly light sentence. And somehow in the midst of all this, his girlfriend ends up owning, with no mortgage, two f apartments in Trump Tower worth $5 million. And Donald has since then uh, testified when he's asked about this. Gee, I, I hardly know the guy. I'm not sure I, I can remember him. Things to that effect. Question 17 was uh, relating to the conversion of the Commodore Hotel into the Grand Hyatt in New York City. Well, you know, in the 1970s, New York just looked like hell. And the Commodore was this seedy, broken-down hotel uh, next to the um, Grand Central Station on the east side. Uh, Donald, um, through his father, Fred, whose longtime, for decades, closest political ally was a guy named Abe Beam, who happened to be the mayor of New York, made a deal to 
rebuild the hotel, strip it down to its uh, core and build what became the uh, Grand Hyatt. And Donald got a tax abatement, apparently the first of its kind, worth $400 million, $10 million a year for 40 years. Um, And um, uh, in the documentary that's been suppressed, uh, or was suppressed, it's I think now going to be released and you're going to be able to see it in various places. About a million people saw it before it was shut down recently because it's got some commercial potential. Uh, One of the top officials in New York says that Mayor Beam told him whatever Mr. Trump wants, meaning Donald, he gets from the city of New York. So Donald's fortune in large part grows from this and numerous other examples of welfare where the taxpayers put up the money. It wasn't Donald's business acumen that got things done. He may have seen an opportunity, but the outsized profits came from you and me as taxpayers uh, flowing to him. And and in that sense, Donald is not different than the Walton family who collect billions of dollars of welfare, the the guys who own Home Depot and Lowe's and uh, Hilton Hotels and other chains. I mean, one of the biggest important stories in this country is the enormous amount of money that we as taxpayers are turning over to the wealthiest families in America. But Donald was a pioneer in this. The uh, supposed or nominal purpose of this tax abatement was to encourage building in a then sort of decrepit New York, uh, Manhattan? Yeah, the, right. And, and so you can make some justification for some tax abatement to finance the deal to get it going. But 40 years? I mean, it just ran out. And uh, Donald uh, said at the time when Wayne Barrett, um, at the Village Voice, asked him about it, uh, why did he get 40 years? And he said, well, I forgot to ask for 50. <laughs> so this was, this, this was just a, a, a political deal for Abe Beam's friend's son. It had nothing to do with economic development. If it was, it would have been like a five- or ten-year abatement at the most. That's almost as good as – or on a par with Hillary Clinton's answer about the uh, Goldman Sachs uh, speech payments. Well, that's what they offered me. Yes, although I, in her case, she gave that money away at least oh. to the uh, – all the money she got for the speeches she gave away. To the F- Clinton Foundation? To the Clinton Foundation, Which yes. is another story. Yes. Uh, yeah. Question 18 uh, regards uh, Donald Trump's management skill as evaluated by Fortune magazine. So here's Fortune magazine, which I think is uh, an 80-year reputation for doing uh, good stuff. And they decided to measure uh, 496 big companies in America. And uh, Donald Trump came in either dead last or within two or three points of last in every category. You know, return on assets, uh, management skill, uh, deployment of resources. Uh, there were a whole series of measures. And he's just at the bottom of the pile. And, and to me, this was not surprising because in Atlantic City, when I covered it for the Philadelphia Inquirer for almost four years, all the other executives, you know, recognized that Trump didn't know what he was doing. Um, the opening of my book, Temples of Chance, is about how Trump got the world's biggest gambler to come to his casino, a guy named Akio Kashiwagi, who's gamb- gambled for a week at the rate of $14 million per hour. Oh. And when he gets ahead for a while, in the long run he has to lose, and he does, Donald is completely freaked out. He can't go to bed. He's on the telephone uh, uh, asking about every single bid because he doesn't understand the games. And, and I was so struck by this incident, which I observed, 
that when I talked to Donald later, I asked a few questions that were designed to see if he knew the gambling agent. I don't gamble, but if I was going to write about the industry, I had to learn mm -hmm. all that stuff. He, he he didn't know about this at all. And that's what Steve Wynn had told me, uh, that Donald had no idea uh, what the business was really about. And, of course, Steve Wynn is a masterful um, a casino owner and a highly competent businessman. Uh, the, the company that uh, Fortune was evaluating was to be uh, specific. His, his casino company. It was, it was his publicly traded casino company. Trump Plaza was fined for what? Trump Plaza was fined for racial discrimination. Uh, they had a player who I spent a lot of time with named Bob LaBuddy. Bob was mobbed up. Um, he was married to the uh, singer Jimmy Roselli, who was more popular with mob guys than Frank Sinatra's <laughs> sister. And Bob, uh, having grown up in North Jersey in the streets, uh, uses a lot of really foul, nasty language. Um, but uh, it was perceived by Donald and some of the people around him that uh, he did not want blacks dealing him cards or women. Uh, Bob went nuts about this. I mean, he sat in his living room and his wife and, his, uh, and Jimmy Roselli all said, you know, yeah, I use that kind of language, but he, they shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. You know, just because I talk that way, you can't remove people. And I wouldn't have ever done that. Uh, Donald claimed later he hardly knew LaBuddy. Well, LaBuddy was his biggest customer. He lost $12 million. So think about that for a moment. If Donald doesn't know him, what does that tell you about his businessman? But in fact, there are photographs of him. Um, Donald gave him numerous gifts, luxury cars, Rolls Royces, uh, Corvettes, uh, flew him in his helicopter, sat next to – he sat at one point at a, a WrestleMania between Ivana and uh, Donald um, and, uh, and Bob LaBuddy, uh, 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 I quote him in my book, Temples of Chance, threatening to kill Donald because Donald kept trying to bed his daughter, Edie, who was married. And it wasn't that Bob objected to Donald sleeping with anybody. He wouldn't have objected to him sleeping with his daughter if she weren't married. <laughs> and he told him to knock it off and, thre and threatened in, in quite colorful language and told him what he would do to him. This is documented where? Um, there were hearings by the Casino Control Commission. There's testimony about what happened. And, of course, at the end of the day, Donald was fined a lot of money uh, for this. And Donald has a long history of being fined for and sued for a discrimination against uh, what he refers to as the blacks. Question 21. Uh, the uh, item from The Art of the Deal uh, about his work on his first casino. So uh, Donald um, was partners with the company that owned the Holiday Inn chain, and it also owned the Harris Casinos in uh, Nevada, which were the most profitable casinos in the state because they were honest. They didn't skim like the places in Vegas. Um, when the time came for the board of directors of the Holiday Corporation to come to Atlantic City to see what progress was being made on this jointly owned project, Donald hadn't done any work. So he brags in the art of the deal that he hired a whole bunch of guys with equipment to dig holes at one end of the property and fill them at the other end. And one of the heart, uh, directors of the company, he didn't say who it was, says to him, you know, it looks like they're not doing any real work here. And in the book, Donald uh, talks about how that was a threatening moment, but he talked his way out of it. Uh, but he brags that he deceived his own partners. I think I called the chapter in Temples of Chance about that, the art of deception. Mm. And Donald has repeatedly in various places bragged about how he deceived people to achieve his ends. I mean, think about that for a moment. It's, it's one thing to 
deceive people. And having worked in Hollywood, you know how that goes, Harry. Yes, uh, but the, the, who goes around bragging about it and writing about it in their books? Best-selling books. Um, David. Well, at least one of yeah. them. <laughs> uh, David, this piece appeared last June or July. Uh, yeah. Since it uh, came onto the Internet, uh, have other journalists contacted you to follow up on these leads? Uh, have you seen, aside from the, uh, the Polish illegal workers and Trump University and uh, things you haven't mentioned, which, like the, uh, yeah. the spectacle of Trump stakes, has, has, any other, uh, has any fellow journalists contacted you to uh, say, hey, I want to I follow up on this? Um, a couple, one at the Washington Post who wrote a story, who's a very good reporter, although it wasn't so much about this stuff. And uh, no, and Harry, this is very troubling. I mean, understand, you know, I, um, I'm i the former president of the National Association of Investigative Reporters, Investigative Reporters and Editors, and I worked at the L.A. Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Detroit Free Press and, and the New York Times as an investigative reporter. I am known in the business for being available. I mean, not a week goes by that some journalist at a big publication doesn't call me with a reporting problem, seeking my counsel on how to deal with it or solve it. Or, and, um, you know, my numbers are in the phone book and they're all over the Internet. Uh, and I, I actually didn't expect that reporters would actually do this. The press in this country has become so cowed and so shrunken as revenues have fallen that, uh, my hope was that the other candidates would raise the questions, mm-hmm. even though I addressed it to journalists. And, of course, you saw Cruz and Rubio eventually, really late in the game, uh, bring up two of the questions. What I did get called by were operatives for the Republican establishment. Mm. Uh, and one of them even saw me in New York City uh, when we were both on a, t- a TV show together. But there were people who called me, and I said, look, I don't work for you guys. Everything I have is in the record Go do the work. Um, but no, we ha- he has not been scrubbed. And um, this, this is a, a real serious uh, problem. We need anybody who's going to have their finger on the button and be the leader of the world needs to be thoroughly and completely investigated. And we're not seeing it. Now, I, I did have uh, somebody who called me, a, a, a politician, say to me that, well, the time to do this, you know, is, is after the nomination if he gets it. And I said, yeah, if you're the par- candidate from the other party, that's right. You don't want to do it till then. But we're not in that business. We're journalists. It's our job to do it right out at the, at the beginning. You're opening the door to a, a larger question I want to ask you. Uh because I was involved in a story, uh, listeners to this program know about the uh, the causes of the flooding in New Orleans in 2005. Oh, yes. And yes. Uh, I heard from a lot of journalists who didn't pick up on the story that that involved going deep into the weeds. Um, let me put it this way. If you don't go deep into the weeds, aren't you just limited to picking the low-hanging fruit? Well, yeah. what most journalists do is they give you an accurate account of the official version of events. If you can't quote people accurately, you don't last long in the business. Mm -hmm. And I read stories every day in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and and the other newspapers I subscribe to either for delivery or online where it's clear to me that the reporter has written an account that is sensible but doesn't really know what they're writing about, especially in areas of economics and government finance. When I was a young man... um, I was a staff writer at the San Jose Mercury when I was 19 years old. 
And I realized I didn't understand how municipal government works. So what did I do? Oh, I went and bought books about the principles of local government. And I studied as time went by over the next seven years, and I was going to college on the side but full-time, um, public administration, uh, budgeting, um, uh, and a lot of economics because those were the things that I needed to learn. Most journalists, they, they don't understand. I mean, and there's a famous incident where a CBS radio station uh, reporting a conviction, the uh, uh, newsreader, the anchor, says, well, what was the jury vote? And the person says, I'll check. <laughs> And, of course, you have to have a unanimous yeah. vote to convict someone of a crime. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's a lot of very good journalists. But what we're seeing here is the, if you're a politics reporter, and they should not call themselves political reporters. They should call themselves politics reporters. It's really fun to cover the, the horse race. I've gone out and done it. It's not what I want to do with my life. But to say I'd done it, I went out and did it years ago. And it's, it's a nice, fun life. But we don't need coverage of the horse race at the level we have. We need coverage of who the candidates are and what their policies are. And the reporters aren't even telling you things like how they're held in a corral when they go to the Trump events. The stuff that uh, has just come out fairly recently about people being slugged and knocked around, mm -hmm. reporters have been observing this all the way along from the beginning, but they didn't see it as a story. And that's a big problem, Harry, is too many journalists report a story when someone declares it to be a story. I've run my whole career, uh, which is almost 50 years now, on a very simple theory. That's what I get to do. I, my professional judgment is this is the story. And then we see what happens. Is it, uh, has that job been uh, arrogated by producers and editors? Oh, I don't think that's changed much the way it's been. I mean, I don't see things being much different uh, now from a long time ago. And I've gone back, in fact, to read some um, uh, both academic articles and uh, journalism books to see because you know, no one ever in the position of talking about the good old days. Mm -hmm. um, we did have a period from the late 60s up to around 2000 where the big newspapers were much more aggressive because they had big budgets they could afford to do things um, as, you know, the fastest disappearing white-collar job in America is journalist. And at the same time, the number of journalists has fallen, depending on how you measure it, by 30 or 40 percent. The number of professional PR people has more than doubled. Many cases are the same people, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's the management of the news you're seeing more and more of and less and less of the actual news. And, and the biggest problem is the beat reporting. It's not so much investigative reporting. I mean, I wish we had more, but we actually do have a lot of it, not necessarily on the subjects I'd like it to be on. But there are city councils in America with in cities of a quarter million people or county boards of supervisors who they don't see a reporter for weeks or months on end. And if you're a... Uh, a klepto politician, this is just mana from heaven for you. Let me turn now to uh, a subject that has been raised in the uh, campaign uh, by, among others, uh, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, uh, the question of corporate inversion. And I think a lot of people, maybe like me, uh, have the fuzziest possible understanding of what that actually is. We know it means... Uh, at the very minimum, that a corporation uh, gets involved in something that looks like a merger or acquisition for the purpose of moving its domicile from the United States to a lower tax country to save on its tax bill. What's what is actually going on with corporate inversion, and and is it uh, is it something new? No, this is actually part of what I won my Pulitzer Prize for when I wrote about this uh, 16 years ago. Now, I guess um, a very simple way to think about it. 
you're a company here in America, you're in the richest market around, you're making a lot of money, and on paper, you move your headquarters for tax purposes to Bermuda, uh, Barbados, the Cayman Islands, or if you're really fortunate and figure out how to do it right, uh, as Apple testified, you're resident nowhere. And guess what? There's no Congress to tax you when you're nowhere. And yet everything else remains the same. Now, uh, th- we're seeing this new round of inversions because of an earlier problem. When Congress adopted the income tax for corporations in 1909, they recognized that if corporations just stuffed their profits in a mattress effectively, the economy would fall apart. You want companies to reinvest at the time, build new factories, hire more workers, pay bonuses, pay dividends to the owners. You don't want them just stuffing money in a bank vault. You need to make it recirculate. So they put a rule in that you can only hold so much in cash and things that are like cash, like treasury bonds. Tens of thousands of companies that that put too much away uh, were penalized by the IRS, but they were almost all smaller domestic companies. The most famous case is a a guy who owned a whole slew of McDonald's because he got in very early and he just wanted to keep it all in the company. In 1986, one line was added to the tax code that nobody wrote about at the time. Nobody noticed in the whole, in the big 1986 tax act that said the rule stays in place unless you move the money outside the United States. And that's when we started to see all these subsidiaries. So when you buy a pair of Nike shoes now, the profits are paid partly to an entity offshore for the use of the swoosh. There's a royalty on those shoes. If you buy a Viagra tablet, uh, the example I use the most, uh, the profits almost all go out of the United States as a royalty paid by Pfizer America to Pfizer uh, Switzerland. And it converts the profit earned in the U.S. that would be taxable into a tax-deductible expense. And as long as you keep the money offshore, uh, at least the ownership of it offshore, You don't pay taxes. Most of the money actually comes back here. A lot of it, you and I are actually paying to keep offshore because they buy treasury notes and treasury bonds with it. And so we pay the company's interest to not pay the taxes on their profits. Nice. The problem is that if you bring the money back, you're going to have to then pay the taxes, and the companies don't want to do that. They want to keep uh, earning money without paying the, uh, the tax. And they can borrow against that money, but it's complicated and it's difficult to do. And if it, and so uh, they, some companies, uh, Apple is the best example. Apple has something in the order of $200 billion offshore. Uh, they want Congress to pass a law saying you can bring the money back and pay almost no tax. In the meantime, some companies have said, I'm not going to wait for that. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if I'll qualify under whatever rules get passed, and I think there will be another one of these bills to do this. We're just going to reorganize and invert by moving our headquarters for tax purposes, not our real headquarters, out of the country. Uh, this is a real fundamental problem, and, and uh, I'm, I'm, Harry, my big project is I am literally drafting an entirely new federal tax code for the 21st century economy. I went around making speeches for about 15 years that we need a new tax code for the economy of this century, and nobody was doing anything. And so one day <laughs> I said, well, it's not going to get done if I don't do it. And while I'm not a lawyer, I have learned how to draft legislation, and I'll write a narrative book about it for ordinary people and then show the legislation. So far, everything I have proposed and shown to various 
very distinguished people in the tax world has passed their muster, but I'm sure that I've still got lots of uh, things I need to do to complete it. But we, we really, this is a symptom of a deeper problem. America has a really terrific tax system for 1960. And Congress is unwilling to do the work to update our tax code for the new economy that we live in. We, we did it 100 years ago when we went from an agrarian society to an industrial society. We got a new tax system. We need one again today. But Cong we give Congress the power to tax. That's the first power we give them. It's the reason we created the second American republic under the Constitution. But Congress is, is nowhere, no one's moving in that direction. Well, this, uh, one could, based on, again, the political rhetoric of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, uh, opine that uh, one of the reasons is because uh, people in Congress uh, run for office with largesse donated by people who don't want to pay taxes. That's right. I mean, the, 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 if you were a member of Congress or anybody listening was a member of Congress, you'd behave like the people in Congress do because otherwise you'd get voted out right away. The people who have money expect you either to play ball with them or at least not interfere with them. And if you don't, well, they'll find somebody else. Let me get back to inversion and and the earlier uh, offshoring of, of money for sheltering the purpose of sheltering it from taxes um is there a difference in the way the 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 apple example was apple has not inverted but it's got as you say 200 billion dollars sitting offshore uh basically in some variety of the bank uh that money therefore as i understand what economics says should happen in a capitalist system is not doing what income and profits are supposed to do from a corporation, that is to say, be primarily reinvested into uh, more plant, more equipment, more personnel, innovation to grow the company and therefore a part of the economy. Exactly. It's, it's just sitting there, right? Right. It's passively invested, and this is the exact problem that Congress debated in, in before the 1909 corporate income tax. I mean, you, you have it exactly right. And what about uh, if if inversion happens? Uh, do those do those those funds equally go abroad and and go passive? Well, if nothing else is done, the company is able to never pay the taxes in most cases. I mean, everybody has a different deal, um, but in most cases, they'll never pay the taxes. Um, there are two competing bills now, uh, one by uh, Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio and Chuck Schumer from New York that basically say, if you want to invert, you're going to have to pay your taxes first. Um, I don't think that's a very good solution either. I mean, we need to have a system. Look, we, we want to encourage profits. We want to encourage growth. We want to have more jobs. We want to build a robust economy that works for everybody. And that's not what the inversion issue is about. The inversion issue is about, I want to enjoy all the benefits of being in the United States, and I don't want to share in the burdens. You can pay the burdens. And the companies that do this, Harry, literally, literally make a profit from the corporate income tax system. When you read that GE or Apple paid 2 or 10% of their profits, no, 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 that's not, not that's technically correct. But in the economic terms, a tax they didn't pay years ago that allowed them to invest all this money offshore and and uh, grow its value 
they now pay, and they end up with more money after their taxes than before. And that is, by the way, the classic definition of a tax shelter. You're better off after you pay your taxes than before. For most of us, we're worse off mm-hmm. after we pay our taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think the American public at all grasps that, well, we are burdened by the income tax to support our government and our liberties. These companies are turning a profit off the same system. And, and so is, uh, I suspect, Donald Trump with his deferrals and Mitt Romney, who wouldn't release his returns, with his deferrals under another rule. Uh, this is going on all over at the top, The uh, what are effectively zero-interest loans. I mean, just, just imagine from it, Harry, uh, uh, people listening, if you could get the government to give you the federal income taxes withheld from your paycheck and the government said, well, you can pay it thir- back to us 30 years from now, and we're not going to charge any interest. And in the meantime, you get to invest that money. I mean, imagine how well off you would be. Mm. The miracle of compound interest. That's right. The magic, magic of compound, of compound interest. interest. Um, just to uh, give us a sense of, of how big the uh, inversion issue is, who are the companies that are doing this right in the last few years? Would they be household names? Well, Johnson Controls, that's not a household name, no. Um uh, Ingersoll Rand did it 15 years ago. Uh, I doubt many people ever heard of it. They make industrial equipment. Uh, and interestingly, the CEO who did it was a former Green Beret who went around everywhere talking about patriotism, what a patriotic company he was, as he abandoned for tax purposes the United States for Bermuda. Um, but no, they're generally not household names. You're not going to see Apple do this for that exact reason. There might be a big negative reaction. Didn't Burger um, King, right? Uh, Burger, well, Burger King is part of a deal Warren Buffett was involved in where they became Canadian. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't quite as onerous. And, and by the way, let me tell you that there's a term for this. It's called uh, stateless income. Remember stateless mm-hmm. persons? Um, and the object of stateless income is you earn your profits in the highest tax jurisdiction you can. So companies try to earn them in the United States, which has uh, on paper, the highest uh, tax uh, rates in the world doesn't actually, but on paper it does. You try to earn profits in Germany and in England. And then what you do is you siphon those profits through accounting devices to places where you pay either no tax or 1% or 2% or maybe 5 um, And uh, in the process, uh, you convert um, your profits into even more profits. Uh, was Pfizer trying to do this? Well, no. Fi- what Pfizer did was in the previous act uh, that uh, Congress passed, the American Jobs Creation Act in 2004, <laughs> it was promised that it would create 660,000 jobs and uh, $37 billion held offshore was brought back. Um, the companies got 85% of their taxes waived, 85% discount. And the day after the law was signed, uh, Pfizer began firing people, and they kept firing people until they had shed 40,000 jobs. So that's what you got for the American Jobs Creation Act. Now, every company didn't do this, but they got one-third of the money. Mm. And many of the companies uh, used it to buy back their own stock, which makes the stock price rise because there's fewer shares, which makes the executives' options more valuable. The one thing the progressive Democrats are trying to get into the next giveaway like this is a requirement that when you bring the money home, you may not use it to buy back your own stock. You either have to pay dividends or bonuses or show that you increase the amount of money you're investing, like in factories and production equipment. Uh, that's very hard to measure, but they're at least trying to get that out of the next bill that I think it's pretty clear is going to come because 
you know, you, you call up your congressman, Harry, maybe maybe you're different than most people. You can get your congressman on the phone. Most people can't. But if you're a lobbyist, you probably have your congressman's cell phone on speed dial. Uh, I'm lucky if I can get my emails to my congressman answered <laughs> to tell you that God's honest truth. David K. Johnson, thank you so much for uh, guiding us through the weeds today. Harry, thank you for having me on. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The youth send 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com, available via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org and available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network SoundCloud, wwno.org, tunein.com, and, of course, iTunes. Please update. And it would be just like knowing the answers to those 21 questions, if you'd agree to join with me then. A tip of the show, chapeau to David K. Johnston, to um, Scott Crisp at 48 Windows in Santa Monica, and Andrew Croucher at WXXI in Rochester, New York, for engineering help with today's broadcast, and to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for their perpetual help with this program. The email address for this broadcast, a playlist of the music heard here on when there is music, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Yes, it's all available at harryshearer.com. And me, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station for the Change is Easy radio network. So long from deep inside your audio device of choice. Thank you.